Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. How many of you have witnessed the reading of a will? Well, you're going to next week. This is a two-part series, and we're going to sit through the reading of a will where you've been named as the beneficiary. Now, first of all, I want to give you the definition of a will. According to Webster, a will is the legal statement of a person's wishes concerning the disposal of their property after their death. I want to say that again. A will is the legal statement of a person's wishes concerning the disposal of their property, the things they own, after they die. Now, somebody has to die before a will can be probated. So it's that person's wishes concerning what's going to happen to their belongings after they're gone, after they've died. Now, it's called a will because it's the expression of their will, their, their wishes, what they want. Now, I'm going to tell you something very exciting tonight. The Bible is the legal statement of Jesus' wishes. It's his will concerning the disposal of his property, his benefits, after his death. Now, Jesus paid a tremendous price to accumulate all these benefits and to have it to give as an inheritance to God's children. Now, you've seen business tycoons of this world who have spent their entire life putting together this financial fortune so that they can leave it to their children and to their grandchildren. Well, God had Jesus come to earth, and he spent his entire earthly life doing exactly the same thing. And his entire inheritance now was left to God's children. So to qualify as a beneficiary, you have to be God's child. Only God's children are going to get in on the inheritance, and you have to be born into his family to become a child. So you can't just be an acquaintance or even be a good friend of the family who runs around with God's children and goes regularly to God's house. You know, there's people who come to church and they run around with Christians, but that's not going to work. You have to be born into his household to be able to qualify. Okay, why is that? I want you to look at Romans 5 verse 12. Now, after the fall, sin had spread throughout the world. And because of that, the entire world was alienated from God. See, legally we had sold the world and we sold ourselves over to the enemy. Now, I want you to take note of the next few verses because they're very, very important. And Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, every person that's born into this world is born with a sin nature. And every single person that's born into this world sins. No one is exempt. Every single person in this world was a sinner. Okay, look back in Romans 3, verse 10. Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3, verse 10, he's quoting from the Old Testament, and he said, There's none righteous, no, not even one. And then look back over in Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his love. In other words, he didn't just love us, but he demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now look on in Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, the penalty for sin is death, but the free gift 
is life in Christ Jesus. Okay, put a marker here in Romans. We're going to come back to it. And I want you to turn over to John chapter 3, verse 16. You could quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now look up in verse 3 of chapter 3. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night and had asked him a question. And in answer to that question, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus is making it very clear that unless you become born again, there is no way for you to get rid of that sin nature that you were born with the first time. In fact, he said, if you're not born again, you'll not even see the kingdom of God. Now, remember, to qualify as a beneficiary of the will, you have to be his child. Only the children get the inheritance. And verse 3 tells us that we have to be born again to become his child. Okay, look two chapters back in John chapter 1, verse 12. For as many as received Jesus to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Okay, that's what we're talking about, becoming a child of God. And he said, as many as received Jesus... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now these are all scriptures that we need to know to find out how to be born again ourselves, and then also to know how to lead someone else to be born again. Okay, I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, starting with verse 9. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him shall not be disappointed. Okay, he's saying when you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, and when you begin to confess him out of your mouth as Lord, and when you mean it, then you become born again. Okay, how does that happen? How do we get born again? Just like Nicodemus asked, does a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Okay, we need to realize this is not a physical birth the second time. This is what happens. The first time it took place physically, but the second time now it's a spiritual rebirth. The moment that we come to a place where we truly believe that Jesus died for us, where we know that he took our sins, he took the consequences of our sins, he took the guilt, he took the condemnation, and when we believe then that he is now alive because God raised him from the dead, and when we decide that we want him to be our Lord, at that moment, the Holy Spirit plants the seed of God down in our spirit, man, and we literally become born again by the incorruptible seed of God. Now, the first time it was the seed of man from which we were born, but the second time it's the seed of God. It's the incorruptible seed of God, the imperishable seed of God. Now, Ephesians 2, verse 8, you can look it up later, but it says it's by God's grace and it's by his love that we're saved, that we're born again through faith in his son. In other words, faith in the fact that Jesus died for us, faith in the fact that God raised him from the dead. And then Ephesians goes on to say, and this salvation is a free gift. Now, the believing and the confessing, that's our part. But the rebirthing is the part of the Holy Spirit. Once we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, then a supernatural thing takes place and the Holy Spirit does it. Now, just like we were born the first time out of our mother's womb into the world with a sin nature, Colossians 1.13 tells us that when we're reborn the second time, it's out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the world into the kingdom of light. 
See, this second birth births us out of Satan's kingdom back into God's kingdom, just exactly like it was before the fall in the garden. And that's why John 1 verse 12 tells us to become a child of God. We simply have to believe in Jesus. Now, it's not something that you can understand with your natural mind because it's something that takes place in the spiritual realm by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's real. It's just as real as your physical birth. This rebirth experience is the biggest miracle that will ever take place in your life. You may be believing for a lot of things, but the greatest miracle that could ever happen to you, if you're a child of God, has already taken place. You'll never have a miracle that's bigger than that. When Christ came in into your heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you were born again out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's why Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, he said, I'm the one that came to give you life. See, when our heart's beating and, and when we're breathing, that's not life. That's existing. But when Jesus came, he said, I've come to give you zoe, abundant zoe. That means the God kind of life. And every bit of this is all tied up in this one word, Jesus. See, when someone has an honest encounter with Jesus, they're never the same again. They'll never be the same again in their spiritual realm. They'll never be the same again in, in the mental realm. They'll never think the same. They'll never be the same emotionally. They'll never be the same in their physical body. See, God wasn't just filling up the pages of the Bible when he said, Jesus is the name that's above every name. And when he says that truly every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's going to happen when Jesus returns again. Every knee will bow and every knee is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus that all of the power and all of the authority of the universe is wrapped up. In fact, the Bible tells us that in him, the whole universe is literally held together. It's all inclusive in that one name, Jesus. You know, no wonder Gabriel was excited when he went to Mary and Joseph and he said, you're going to have a son and you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save the world. See, it's all in Jesus. There's no prayer in the universe that's more powerful than that one word prayer, Jesus. When you really mean it, when that comes out of your mouth. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where things happened so fast that you didn't even have time to pray? You didn't have time to quote the word? And all of a sudden you were just in the midst of a disaster? Well, I'm going to tell you what, if we can get that one word, Jesus, out our mouth and mean it, we're going to find that it'll take us out of the earthly realm and it'll put us into the heavenly realm. So today, what I want us to do is look at scriptures that's going to remind us of why this is true and remind us of who he really is. Then next week, we're going to look at the scriptures to see what came as a result of what we're going to be looking at today. Now, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to start at the back and work forward. We're going to be starting with verse 2. There's absolutely nothing that can put us in a state of awesome reverence before God more quickly than reminding ourselves of who He truly is and what He did for us. Now, in this passage of Scripture, we find that John has been taken up into heaven and God is giving him some revelation that has become revelation knowledge to us ever since. And so in verse 2, John said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon this earth. Okay, why was Jesus found worthy? You need to circle verse 9. He was found worthy to break the seals because he was slain and he purchased for God with his own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, he literally redeemed mankind. And when he did that, then he made us to be kings and he made us to be priests unto our God. Now, no one was found worthy except the sacrificial lamb of God. No one. The Bible tells us that no one in heaven, no one on earth, or no one under the earth was found worthy. Now, the reason that all the authority and all the power in this world is in the name of Jesus is because there's no one that has ever even approached the supreme sacrifice that Christ made. You know, there has never been that kind of obedience to the will of God before by anyone, ever. Now, I want to show you something in the Old Testament. I say this all the time, but the things in the Old Testament are a type and shadow. Are there a picture that's pointing toward the real thing that was going to come to pass under the New Covenant? So before we go to the picture in the Old Testament, I want us to look in John chapter 3, verse 14. Now, in this passage, God refers back to this Old Testament event that foretold or foreshadowed the most important event that was ever going to take place. In verse 14, he said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes may in him have eternal life. Okay, God is so determined that we don't miss this type and shadow that he literally spells it out here in the New Testament. He said, just exactly like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, he said, in the same way the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Basically what God was saying, he's saying, I don't want you to miss the analogy of that story in the Old Testament. Now I want you to look in Numbers chapter 21. We find in the Old Testament that, that the children of Israel had sinned against God. And these snakes had come into the camp and many of the people had been bitten and they were very sick and many of them were dying. And so the people came to Moses and they said, Moses, we need you to intercede. We need to know what to do. And so in Numbers chapter 21, starting with verse 7, says that the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and because we've spoken against you, Moses. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, or set it on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he's going to live. Okay, when Moses cried out to God and interceded, I want you to notice what kind of answer it was that God gave to him. God said, you make the image of one of those fiery serpents. You make an image of that deadly serpent that's killing the people and put it up on a pole and everybody that comes and looks at that serpent is going to live. 
Well, you think, boy, how simple. Who wouldn't look up to, to see that if it was going to make them well? But we need to remember that there were several million people and they were spread out over miles and miles of territory. So it was going to take some faith on the part of the individual when they were so sick that they could hardly move. You know, when their whole body was just racked with pain, it was going to take some faith to pull themselves up out of their tent and then walk for possibly miles to get to the place where they could see that fiery serpent. See, they didn't have a car out in the garage that they could jump in and run down and take a look at the snake. So effort had to be put forth, and it took faith to initiate that effort. Now, that's a type and shadow of the faith sometime that we have to have to do what it is that God's told us to do. Some of the people would be too sick to even want to make the effort. And then there were going to be others that wouldn't think it was going to work anyway, so they didn't want to put forth the effort. But verse 9 tells us that as many as put forth the effort and looked were made well. But even then, why a snake? You know, I used to wonder, Lord, why wasn't it an innocent lamb that was put up on that pole? You know, a, a sacrificial lamb. But why, Lord, why did you say put a snake on the top of the pole? Well, the Lord began to show me that if we can understand why it was a snake that was on the pole, why that was the type and shadow of the crucified Christ, it would open our eyes to what really took place in the atonement of Jesus. See, God gave us the secret right here in Numbers that can literally bring revelation into our heart to understand what he did for us. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is a companion scripture to this one here in Numbers. It says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to read that again because I want that to really soak into our, our thinking. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, Jesus who knew no sin, he had never sinned. He was made to be sin literally. Jesus took the sin of the entire world on himself and he became for us sin. He became sin on our behalf. Now that was prophesied back in Isaiah. Now Isaiah described the crucifixion of Jesus so accurately that it's as though he wrote it after the fact rather than hundreds of years before the fact. Now later you can look up Isaiah 52 verse 14. But this is prophesying the condition of Christ while he was on the cross. I want you to keep in mind that the type and shadow of the crucified Christ is the snake. And verse 14 tells us that the appearance of Christ there on the cross was marred more than any man and his form was marred more than the son of man. Okay, I want you to think about that. His appearance was marred more than any man when he was on the cross are more than the son of any man. And when we comprehend this scripture, we're going to be able to understand why it was a serpent on the pole that was to be the type and shadow of the crucified Christ. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, was literally made to be sin for us when he was put on the cross. Jesus took the sins of the entire human race, and he took on the consequences of those sins. And he became sin, and it marred his body more than any man. Now, you've seen a lot of people whose bodies have been marred, some to the point of almost not being recognizable. But the Bible says that his body was marred more than any, more than the form of any, more than the son of any man. He became sin. He took on the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin, part of it is sickness and disease. That came in as a result of the sin when it came into the world. It's a byproduct of the original sin. 
Now, I'm not saying that every time we're sick, it's because we sin. But I am saying that before the fall in the garden, there was no sickness. There was no disease. And when sin entered into the world, then sickness and disease came as a result of that. And it had to be paid for. There was a legal debt, a legal penalty that had to be paid. We read the scripture where it says that the wages of sin is death. The penalty is death. And God couldn't change that. He couldn't change the penalty. It took someone who was not guilty that had to come and die to legally pay that price and pay the penalty. Now, there are people who believe that God put sickness on the world because he's angry with man for sinning, but that's so far from the truth. See, we've got to understand what took place or we'll always get into deception at this point. God had given all authority on this earth over to Adam. And man had dominion over the earth at that time. It says that the earth was in subjection to man. Therefore, when man chose by his own free will to give his authority over to Satan, that made Satan the God of this world. God didn't do that. Man did. Legally, there was no way for God to undo that transaction, even though God is omnipotent because, see, he had given the authority over to man. And he had given man a free will. And it was man's right to give it away. But when he did, it tied God's hands. Therefore, there was a legal debt that had to be paid to buy it back. Now, it was at that point that God devised a plan whereby Jesus then, who knew no sin, would literally become sin. He would be tempted before he went to the cross. He would be tempted in all areas. Yet he would never sin. He would never fall for that temptation. And he would go to the cross, bear the sin, bear the consequences of that sin to buy us back. And that's why he's called the Redeemer. That's what the word Redeemer means. It means one who buys back. Now, there was no other way. God himself had to do that as a man. No one else was found worthy, just like it said in, in Revelation. And it's so wrong when people think that Christ did this just in his divinity. See, they think, oh, it really wasn't that hard for Christ because after all, he was God. No, that penalty had to be paid not by God in his divinity, but that had to be paid by man for it to be legal, for it to be able to undo what had taken place. Now, I want you to look at Philippians 2 verse 3. You'll also notice throughout the Gospels, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Now, that's because it's absolutely necessary for us to realize that he did what he did as a man. And Philippians chapter 2 emphasizes the fact again very, very clearly. In verse 5, it tells us to have this attitude or have this mind in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross." Okay, Jesus was equal with God. He's the second party in the Trinity. But the Bible tells us that he emptied himself of all that he had in heaven. He took on the body and the soul of a man in order to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. It'll be so much more meaningful when it really dawns on us that he did every bit of this for us as a man. We're going to understand so much more how much the Lord loves us. It's going to become so much clearer inside of our mind. You know, have you ever dreaded something so badly that you literally thought you just couldn't think about it? I've seen children in doctor's offices and they dreaded a shot so badly that they would scream like they were dying before they'd ever been touched. 
And some people have dreaded death. Other people have dreaded childbirth. And others have dreaded losing a loved one so badly that they're tormented. Well, I want you to think about the Lord in human form with every human emotion that we've had, tempted in all ways, like as we, yet without sin. Jesus was facing the fact that he was going to take on the sin of the world and he was going to experience for the first time all of the consequences of sin, every sickness, every disease, all of the mental agony. Think about the mental agony that goes on in this world. He was going to take on all the emotional agony. He was going to, going to take on all of the mental illness. Every consequence that had come to this earth because of sin. And he was going to bear it on his body for the world. Now that's why his body was marred more than any man. This helps us to better understand what was taking place there in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to look up Luke chapter 22. While we're turning there, the other account of that is in Matthew chapter 26 verse 36. And in that account, it says that Jesus was grieved to the point of death. Sometimes we read over that and we don't pay that much attention. But it says that he was grieved to the point of death. Okay, now the same account in Luke 22, verse 39, says that Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you may not enter into temptation.'" And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Have you ever dreaded something to the point that you sweated drops of blood? Probably not. <laughs> I doubt that any of us has ever approached any one of us has ever approached the mental and emotional agony that Jesus was facing. And I personally believe because he knew he was going to be separated from the Father for the first time. For the first time, he was going to be separated because when he took on the sin of the world, it was going to separate him from the pureness of the Father. Now, as we look at the anticipation that he was feeling right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, what it does, it'll give us a new awesome awareness of the kind of love that he had for us. He had been dealing with sin in people's lives every day, and he had been dealing with the consequences of sin. He had been casting out demons that would be tormenting people. He knew all about sin, but now he was going to take that sin on his own body. He was going to experience it. He was going to become the supreme sacrifice. Now, I'm going to read to you about that in Isaiah 53. I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. Now, this chapter is not foretelling the entire earthly life of Jesus, but this chapter is just the prophetic revelation of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want you to see how accurately it's portrayed. In Isaiah chapter 53 out of the Amplified, it says, who has believed, who has trusted in, relied upon and clung to our message of that which was revealed to us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been disclosed? For the servant of God grew up before him like a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he was just an ordinary man. Uh, he took on the form of an ordinary man. He was despised and rejected, and he was forsaken by men. Now, when this took place only the week before 
They had been putting out the palm leaves and they had been telling him that they wanted him to be king. Now, one week later, they're hollering that they want him to be crucified. And it says that he's despised, rejected, and forsaken. Even some of his very own disciples that had walked with him and eaten with him and had lived with him for three years had forsaken him at this last hour. He was a man of sorrows and pains. He was acquainted with grief and sickness. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. He identified with sin becoming sin on our behalf. And it says that no one esteemed, no one appreciated what he had done. And none of us really appreciate what he did until we allow the Holy Spirit to make that come alive on the inside of us. That's why it's so important for us to allow the Holy Spirit to really quicken inside our spirit exactly what took place in the crucifixion. And in verse 4 it says, Surely he has borne our grief, sickness, weakness, and distress, and carried away our sorrows and pain of punishment. Okay, in the Hebrew, that word grief and sorrow means sickness and disease. The pains of our body, the pains of our mind. Surely he has borne the pains of our body and the pains of our mind. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Okay, when the people of that day saw someone being afflicted, they automatically assumed that God was doing it to them to punish them for their sins. So when they saw Jesus, many of them thought he was just being smitten and afflicted because of something that he had done, some sin that he had committed. Now, they were wrong, but they still believed that. So as they watched, they blamed him for what was going on, what was happening, not knowing that he was being wounded for our sins, that he was being bruised for our iniquity. And the punishment that was necessary for us to once again have peace between earth and heaven was needful to fall on him. And that's exactly what it says in verse 5. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The punishment needful to obtain peace that was going to bring peace between heaven and earth and well-being for us was upon Him. And with the stripes that wounded Him, we are healed and made whole. Okay, this death had to take place for that penalty to be paid. And it was with the stripes that wounded him, literally, that, that we're healed and made whole, that we can become a whole person. And in verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has made to light on him the guilt and the iniquity of us all. And we have all like sheep gone astray. Every one of us have gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We've all been rebellious. We've all been full of self-will. And we've done everything except God's thing. We've, we've done our own thing. And God took every bit of that rebellion. He took every bit of that self-will, all of that bitterness and all of the sin and all the consequences of sin, and he laid it on him. And in verse 7, it says that he was oppressed, yet he was afflicted. When he was afflicted, he was submissive and he opened not his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who among them considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of God's people, to whom the stroke was due, stricken to his death? Now this is interesting. They had absolutely no inclination that he was being killed, cut off from the land of the living for their very own sin to whom the stroke was due. And in verse 9 it says, They assigned him a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. 
Remember, he was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man. Although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, and he's made him sick. Sometimes we look at that and we think, Lord. But the reason that it was the will of God to bruise him, the reason that it was the will of God to literally make him sick was because there was absolutely no other way for us to be bought back. And God loved us that much. Apart from what Jesus did, we and every single other person on the face of this earth would have been totally doomed. And God loved us to the point that it did please him to bruise him and put the sin on him. And that's why Timothy says that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge of Jesus because he paid a high price to redeem us back. And so it's not God's will that one should perish. So God had no other choice now but to crush him in order that he could pay the penalty for our sin. So he put him to, to grief. If you look in the margin of your Bible where it says grief, it's always interpreted sickness because that's what the word grief means. Made him sick. And the last part of verse 10, it says, When you and he make him an offering for sin, and he has risen from the dead in time to come, he shall see his spiritual offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will and pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul, and he'll be satisfied. I love that part of, uh, of this scripture in Isaiah 53. Because as Jesus now sees the fruit of what he went through, he is satisfied. He looks at us and he thinks we're worth it. Now we look at each other and sometimes we don't think we're worth it. But he looks at us and he's pleased with the fruit of his labor. Says he's satisfied. He thinks we're worth it. And I love to read that and think, Lord, you think we were really worth what you went through. And look again at verse 11. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge of himself. Shall my uncompromisingly righteous one, my servant, justify and make many righteous, upright and in right standing with God. And that's exactly what that scripture in 1 Corinthians says, that he became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God, in order that we might become righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities and their guilt with the consequences, says the Lord. So he became sin in order that we be could become righteous. And then verse 12 is a very interesting scripture. It says, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, kings and rulers, and he shall divide the spoil with the mighty because he poured out his life into death. Okay, it says he's going to divide the spoil. The spoil of the battle. Whoever won the battle got the spoil of the battle. But it says that he's going to divide the spoil of the battle with us. And the last part of verse 12, and he let himself be regarded as a criminal. And he did. He was hung on the cross and people thought he was a criminal. He allowed himself to be regarded as a criminal and be numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore and took away the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, makes intercession for the rebellious. Now when we see the agony on the cross and we, when we realize what he did, how he truly paid it all and redeemed us and bought us back, I'm going to tell you what, we need to ask ourselves, like it says in verse 3, do I truly appreciate his worth? Do I esteem him? Do we do that? Do we meditate on what he did so that we can esteem and, and appreciate? It says that they didn't know in his generation, they didn't know that he was cut off from the land of the living. 
because of the stroke that was due them. But we do know it. We've been taught for 2,000 years and we know that that's what happened. So we owe it to him to meditate to the point that we appreciate and esteem. I think that's why I love that song so much that we sing. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take away my sins and that's exactly what he did. He took the debt that we couldn't pay and he paid the debt that he didn't owe. He died for us and he left us his will. He even rose from the dead to become the mediator of that will. And we became the beneficiary, we became the recipient of the benefits. So no wonder that song goes on to say that now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt and washed me white as snow. We need to sing that song every day just to meditate and remind ourselves of what he did. Everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we're going to enjoy throughout eternity is because of Jesus. It is truly all in him. It's all in Jesus. And he did that because he loved us that much. Father, we thank you for that love. There is no possibility of having words to express our gratitude for what you did and, and, and our love for what you did for us. But Father, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that we'll come to a place where we do meditate every day on what you did for us that we might truly appreciate and esteem you, Lord, to the very best of our ability. Lord, help us to, to love you as you deserve to be loved. Help us to appreciate you as you deserve to be appreciated. Lord, help us to esteem you. That is the desire of our heart. We thank you, Lord, that even though we owed a debt that we couldn't pay, Lord, I thank you that you loved us enough to pay that debt that you certainly <laughs> didn't deserve, but you did it because you loved us. And Father, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.